We've been studying through the book of Titus the last few weeks, and this morning we're going to be in Titus chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, or if you have your phone, go ahead and open that up and get to Titus chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. In the 1950s, there was a young lady named Alice Stewart. And Alice Stewart was uh, an emerging, uh, she was a part of an emerging field at the time in epidemiology, and she was out there to study the, how these different diseases and uh, uh, things can affect people, viruses and all this, and she was studying this, and she knew that if she was going to make a name for herself, if she was going to do something great in this field of study, if she was going to set herself apart, that she would have to make some great discovery. And so what she noticed over and over again was that the rate of childhood cancer was on the rise, beginning in the early 1950s. And so she began to study childhood cancer, and she had limited funding, so she knew that she only had one opportunity to really find some answers. And so she sent out to all these families across the nation this carbon copy survey that they would check the boxes, and she asked questions like, has your child eaten boiled sweets, and do they eat you know, food with coloring in it, and, and at what age did they start school, and what is the family's income? And she tried to process through all this information. You see, at the time, most of childhood epidemics were related to the socioeconomic level of the family, but what was happening with childhood cancer was that across the board, it was affecting kids no matter what their family's income was. And there was one thing that stood out to her, that at a rate of two to one, the kids who had contracted childhood cancer, and many of them had died, at a rate of two to one, their mothers had had x-rays while they were pregnant. And so she began, this is a pretty significant finding. If you know anything about statistics, you know that that is pretty significant. And so she began to publish this study and to do a little bit more work. And she was out there, she was crying, she was uh, heralding the the reality that these these x-rays while pregnant are dangerous. And that, that something that the doctors at the time said, no, these are good. These are helping us make diagnosis. How could it possibly be bad? We're doctors. We only do good. What she found went against conventional wisdom of the day. So no one was willing to listen when she said, no, it's actually, it, it's these x-rays that are causing this childhood cancer epidemic. It's tearing families apart. It's ruining children's lives. It's breaking the hearts of mothers and fathers. And it's tearing families apart. But what she had to say went against conventional wisdom, and so no one wanted to listen. This morning, we're going to look at a passage that's going to fly in the face of conventional wisdom that's out there today, and what our culture says is right for the family and how we ought to live within our families. But I I, I want to be up front and say this, that I think there are many times in our lives when we have to move past conventional wisdom to the wisdom of the wisdom of God. Amen? When we've got to be willing to say, we've got to get to a point in our lives, and we've got to say that that God is the designer. God is the designer. He's our creator. And and let's say this, that uh, let's put it in practical terms. Would you agree that the person who, who designs the invention has the right to write the instructions? Is that true? Can, can we, you can talk in church, by the way. It's all right. All right. It's, it's all right. We can talk in church. So does the designer have the right to write the instructions? Yes. And so I think it's time that we say we need to move past conventional wisdom, and we need to be willing to look into the Word of God and say, what does the Word of God have to say? We need to get to the wisdom of the wisdom of God. 
And it's going to be challenging this morning because as we look at this passage, some of you, I can already see your eyes, you're looking down, you're reading the the words there, and you're seeing things like, love your husbands, love your children, um, be workers at home, submit to your husbands, and all of this, you're waiting for someone to show up in the DeLorean and say, Marty, get in, we're going back to 1985, right? we're, We're stuck in the 1950s. And I know that you're thinking, oh, here it comes. Here it comes, but I want us to be willing to submit our lives to the Word of God and to listen and to hear exactly what He has to say because, first of all, I want to warn you that, that just at first glance, I know that, that we've been conditioned when we hear these things to kind of balk at that and say no and reject that immediately, but I want us to listen to the full counsel of the wisdom of the wisdom of God. Can we agree to do that together this morning? It's going to be challenging. It's going to be uh, maybe something you have never heard before. But again, we've said that, that God is the designer. There are three institutions that, that we see clearly from Scripture that God has designed. The family, the church, and government. All of Scripture attests to the reality that God has designed those things. Now here's what you need to know about Satan. Satan's job, his sole purpose is to come into the, three, the things that God has created where God has put order and he wants to create chaos. Satan, all he wants to do is create chaos. And so when we get to the family, what Satan wants to do is he wants to create chaos in your family. And he's going to do that by attacking you spiritually. And sometimes he may even attack people spiritually, uh, physically. But what he wants to do is he wants to take the thing that God intended uh, to be a reflection of him and to, to reflect the order that God has created in the universe. And he wants to create chaos. And so we've got to be willing to look past the wisdom of this world the conventional wisdom, and get to the wisdom of the wisdom of God and say, what are the instructions that God gives when it comes to the the family? What are the instructions God gives when it comes to the family? So we've been in the book of Titus, and we know that Paul leaves Titus on this island in the Mediterranean called Crete, and he says, Paul, I'm leaving you for a purpose. I didn't just drop you off and say, hey, um, we don't have any more room for you. You stay here. No, he says, I left you here for a purpose, to put some things in order. And he says, if we're going to put the church in order, the first thing we need to do is we need to create leadership within the church. And so he tells Paul to appoint elders, and then he gives him a warning about what bad leaders look like. Don't let any of these people be leaders. And now, last week, we saw that he gives instructions to to older men and older women, and we said that that as we look around, we all see people that are older than us, and we all see... uh, so that means that, or, or excuse me, we all see people that are younger than us. So that means that in some way, shape, or form, at times, we are the older men, we are the older women who are to be giving instruction to the younger men and the younger women. And so Paul has said, look, if we're going to put order in the church, we've got to have leadership, but we also have to realize that everything starts at home. As the home goes, so goes the church. And if Christian homes are falling apart, then the church is going to be falling apart as well. If there's no structure, if there's no order, if there's no clearly defined roles and responsibilities within the home, then when it comes to the church, things are going to be falling apart as well. And so Paul has instructed uh, the older men to instruct the younger men and the, younger women, the older women to instruct the younger women. And as we look at this passage this morning, uh, what I want you to know is we're going to see that, that Paul says, wives love your husbands, but nowhere does he say husbands love your wives, at least in this passage. And so what you've got to understand is that while this passage is an essential teaching, it's not exhaustive, right? There are 66 books in the Bible, and the overwhelming counsel of God says, husbands, you are to love your wives. In fact, you're to love your wives as Christ loved the church. That means you're to love her so much that you would give your life, that you would be willing to sacrifice uh, physically, emotionally, spiritually for your wife. 
Okay? So, what we have to understand, this is not an exhaustive teaching, but it is essential for helping us understand the full counsel of the wisdom of God. And so, as we jump in this morning, what we're going to see is that Paul's going to give some instructions to the younger women and to the younger men. And there's two things that Paul is concerned about when it comes to the younger women and the younger men. First, he says, I want there to be some character, right? Younger women, younger men, there's some character qualities that I want you to have. And secondly, he says, there are some convictions that I want you to have. Okay, so last week we established that every single one of us, in some way, shape, or form, falls into the category of an older man and older woman, right? Say right. All right. How many of you in this room are under 116 years old? Raise your hand if you can still get it up. Right. Under 116 years old. The oldest person on the earth is 106, as of May, if she's still alive, she's 116 years old. So if you're under 116 years old, guess what? You're a younger man or a younger woman. So these instructions here this morning are for you. Let's go ahead and jump in. If you're ready to jump in the text, say jump. All right, let's go. Man, you guys are awake this morning. This is awesome. All right, Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, Paul says that the older women are to teach what is good so they may encourage the younger women to love their husbands, love their children, to be self-controlled, pure, homemakers, kind, and submissive to their husbands so that God's message will not be slandered. All right. So again, I know it sounds like, uh, it it sounds like we're going back to the 1950s, but we're going to get there in a minute. And and what I want us to understand first is that we see um, God's going to give us some instruction about the younger women's character. He's going to give some instruction about their character. God is much more concerned about the worker than he is the work. Amen. God is way more concerned with the character that we're developing than the work that we're doing. And so he's going to lay out some character. And the first thing he's going to say is that they have to be self-controlled. Everybody say self-controlled. self-controlled. This is the fourth time we've come across this word in the first just two short little chapters of this book. Paul says that elders need to be self-controlled. Older men need to be self-controlled. Older women need to be self-controlled. Younger women need to be self-controlled. And guess what? When he gets to younger men, guess what they need to be? self-controlled, right? So, so what Paul, uh, you, you get the idea that maybe this is important to God, that we have some self-control, that we're able to put boundaries on our lives, that we're able to, to live uh, with, with avoiding one extreme or the other. So Paul says self-control. He tells the younger women, the older women, to teach the younger women to be self-controlled. The second thing he says, he says, teach them to be pure. The second part of their characteristic is that they're to be pure, They're to be pure. Now, the word that's used here is a reference to their sexual purity, that they're to be sexually constrained, that that their entire life is not to be about their physical body and what they're presenting to the world, but they're to be humble and that they're to carry themselves in a way that demonstrates their obedience to God. And what makes them beautiful is not the way they look on the outside. Although, as we saw last week, that doesn't mean that we, ladies, it doesn't mean you, you only wear sweatpants and t-shirts all the time, right? You can, you can be beautiful, but that's not what defines you. What defines you is your character as a woman who's pursuing obedience to God, right? And so Paul says, older women, teach the younger women to be pure. It's, it's about honor, not about their physical body. The last part of the characteristic that he says here for their character, he says that I want you to teach them to be kind. Everybody say kind. Now, this past week, I pulled out every Greek text that I have, every Greek uh, book that I have, and I looked up this word in the Greek, and I did an exhaustive study on this word kind. And you know what it means? It means kind, right? It means kind. 
And Paul says, older women, you've got to teach these younger women that, that they ought to just overflow with kindness. That, that their lives ought to be characterized by kindness to their family, kindness to their neighbors, kindness to those around them. Moms, wives in this room, let me ask you, uh, when your kids look back on their childhood, are they going to remember your kindness? Not just to them, but your kindness to the people around them. College students, when you graduate, 10 years from now, when your classmates, your, your, your sweet mates, your hallmates, your roommates look back, are they going to say, this person was kind? Wow, she was just so kind. Paul says, let, let kindness be one of the defining characteristics of women, uh, of the families. Will they remember your kindness? And now he's going to jump into the convictions, and, and this is where we're going to get into things like love your husbands, love your children, be homemakers, and, and be submissive to your husbands. And, and I know, again, this is, this is the part where we're going to start to stumble because we come to this with a lot of our cultural baggage. And, and what I want to do for us is I want us to set the table before we get into this. Because what we've got to understand is that God is the designer, and that as the designer, he reserves the right to write the instructions. And what we're going to see is all the way back in creation, back in Genesis chapter 3, um, we're going to get a clear picture of what the roles and responsibilities are uh, for Adam and Eve, for husbands and wives, for men and women. So if you have your Bibles, or if you want to turn in your phone quickly to Genesis chapter 3. So here's what's going on in Genesis chapter 3. What we have is God creates Adam, and Adam, we read that Adam is there, and he's, he's working alone in the garden, and he realizes that there's no helper for him, and so God puts him to sleep. And God takes from his side, from, from one of his ribs, right? We call that the prime rib. Uh, a little humor. I'll try to give you a warning next time, right? So God takes from his rib, and he creates woman. He doesn't take from his front. He doesn't take from his back. He takes from his side. I think that's pretty significant, that they're to be working side by side. Uh, and so God creates woman, and there in the garden, he gives him one instruction. He says, uh, number one, be fruitful and multiply. And number two, whatever you do, don't eat from this tree. And guess what they do? They eat from the tree. Let me ask you this. Who sins first? Eve, right? But when God comes looking to hold them accountable, who does he look for? Adam. When God wants to deal with the family, he starts with the husband. He starts with the husband, and and he says, what did you guys do? And so Adam and Eve are sitting there, and they're fighting back and forth. And Adam says, well, the woman you gave me. And she's like, well, the serpent that you put in the garden. And God says, I've had enough. Here's what's going to happen. Because you disobeyed, there's going to be consequences. And he puts... Uh, he, he delivers this curse to them beginning in verse 16. He says of the woman, he says, I will intensify your labor pains and you will bear children in anguish. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. Now, what is God doing here? God is saying, look, Eve, your primary role, when I said be fruitful and multiply, yes, it takes a husband and a wife to be fruitful and multiply, but your primary role is as the life giver of these children. You are the one who is going to bear children, and now because you have sinned, I'm going to make your role in that even more difficult. And and I honestly believe that when God says uh, you're going to bring forth children in pain, I believe that he has way more than just the birth process in mind. That he has the entire child-rearing process in mind, because let's be honest, it is difficult and painful at times to raise children. And God says, Eve, your primary role is as, is as the caregiver, as the one raising the children. And so now, because of your disobedience, it's going to be more difficult. Now look what he says to Adam. 
to Adam in verse 17. He says, The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistle for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since for you were taken from it. For, dust, for you are dust, and you will return to dust. What is God saying? He says, Adam, because of your sin, I'm going to curse you in your primary role as the provider. It's going to be really difficult for you to bring home a paycheck. You're going to have to work really hard. And so in this short little section, as we see as God's delivering the discipline, the consequences of their sin, he says, I'm going to, I'm going to curse you each in your primary roles. And we see two things that every family needs. Christian family, non-Christian family, it doesn't matter. Two family needs, every, every family needs two things. They need a caregiver and they need a provider. Now, that does not mean that at times the woman who is her primary responsibility as the caregiver can't participate in the provision. And it doesn't mean that the man as the primary provider can't participate in the caregiving. Let me give you an example. Uh, about a year and a half ago, I was with both my boys at HEB over on, uh, off of I-35 and 29. I left my wallet in the car, and I said, come on, boys, let's run out to the car. There's, it's Sunday afternoon, so you know what HEB is like on Sunday afternoon. So everybody was really happy with me that I was having to go out to my car and get my wallet. So I come on, let's, let's run. Well, at the time, they were a little over three, and so they still didn't have their, like, land legs yet. And uh, one of my son's bear trips, and there's this little metal piece at the bottom of the windows, you know, those giant industrial windows that they have, that little metal piece, and he falls and he smacks his head right here and it splits right open. Now, when that happened, I did not look at him and say, ah, we're going to have to call your mom. She's in the care department. I'm just provision. Um, So you're going to have to deal with this on your own. No, I scooped him up in my arms and I let him know it was going to be all right and I calmed him down and I took him to the emergency room, right? I'm not the primary caregiver, but at times I still provide care. It's the same thing. Uh, women are, may not be the primary provider, but there's still opportunity for them to participate in the provision. What we're talking about here is clearly defined, clearly understanding our roles and responsibilities. And what Paul is saying here is that if there's going to be order in the church, there's got to be order in the family. And in order for there to be family, there has to be a prioritization of our roles and responsibilities. No one role is more important than the other. Amen? Amen. All right, let's look at what he says. Every family needs care and provision. And so we see that wives are by God's design, and God holds, holds the patent on the design, so he gets to write the instructions, right? So by God's design, ladies, you are the primary caregiver. And here's what he says to Paul. He says, Paul, you need to teach the older women, to teach the younger women that they need to have some convictions. And the first one he says is this, that they need to love their husbands, Literally translated, it means they need to be husband lovers. Husband lovers. And now what does that look like? Well, a lot of times today what we see, especially in sitcoms and TV, is, is this. We see um, women that walk around and say, oh, everybody has their cross to bear and mine's name is Frank. Frank is the cross that I have to bear. I can't believe Frank. And you know, the, he sits in that chair all day and it's named perfectly Lazy Boy. That describes him. He's just a lazy boy. No, ladies, as, as a lover of your husband, one who loves your husband, what your husband needs for you, and the way God has designed men is the one thing that we need most is we need to be built up. We need wives that are out there saying, man, my husband's not perfect, um, but I sure do love him. Man, he's far from perfect. That's why we chase Jesus, because he's the perfect one. 
but I love him and I care about him. And, and I'm going to commit speak, to speak well of him publicly. Right? And, and if there's something between you two, you keep it between you two. But your husband needs you to be building him up. Husband needs you to be building him up. And husbands, don't think just for, for a moment that uh, just because the wives in this passage are told to love their, their husbands and nowhere do we see that it says love your wives, you don't get off the hook. Right? You still have to love your wives. Go to Ephesians 5 and, and read that section about what loving your wife actually looks like. But Paul says, hey, older ladies, uh, what I want you is I want you to teach the younger women that yes, there are times your husband is going to be a chump. Uh, but I want you to love him. And, and what that means is, is even when he's difficult to love, and even though you see all of his faults, you see all of his mistakes, uh, love is this, looking at him and saying, I'm not going anywhere. I'm sticking with you till the end. Till death do us part, I'm here. The second thing Paul says for their convictions, he says that they are to be lovers of their children. They're to love their children. Again, the word literally translates Children lover, child lover. Um, William Wallace, no, not that William Wallace, a different William Wallace in the 1800s. William Ross Wallace penned the poem. How many of you can remember this? The hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. Moms, do you understand the significance of that? That you have great influence over the next generation of Christ followers. The hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. Paul is saying, hey, older women, you need to teach the younger women that they need to be involved in their children's lives, that they need to be present with them, that they need to be guiding them and teaching them and instructing them, and to, that they would learn how to honor God through all that they do. He says you need to teach them to be children lovers. Children lovers. And, and let me say this. Um, moms in the room, raise your hand if you're a mom, grandma, whatever your role is. Thank you for what you do. Thank you for what you do. It is not, it's not an easy job. Um, is it easy to always love your children? Uh, you're afraid to answer that because you don't want to be judged. Um, let the pastor answer that for you. It is not always easy to love kids. They can be selfish. Uh, and moms, you have, have this amazing ability to rise above that and to love them unconditionally, even when they're going through their terrible twos, or terrible teens, uh, you have this ability to rise up and to love them unconditionally anyways. And so we applaud you for what you do. And what you do is, is amazingly significant. So thank you. Thank you for what you do. Now we get to the one that's probably going to challenge a lot of us the most. And Paul says the, the next conviction that he wants them to have is that I want the young women to be homemakers, is the way the Holman Christian translates it. Some translations simply say that she's to be busy at home. Busy at home. And here's the idea of the word. The idea is that she is the guardian of the home. She's the one caring for the home. She guides the home. Now, now, what does this mean? Does this mean that she's a slave to the home, that the expectation is that she's barefoot pregnant and in the kitchen? Absolutely not. Does it mean that she doesn't ever have opportunity to participate in the provision? Absolutely not. No more than, than men have opportunity to participate in the care. Uh, and I want us to, to consider a couple things. If everyone in the home is focused on provision, then Houston, we've got a problem. And if everyone is focused on care and no one's focused on provision, then guess what? Houston, we have a problem. 
so Paul is just saying here, hey, we've got to have clearly defined roles and responsibilities for the home to work well. Um, how many of you guys really enjoy history? I love history. I love especially World War II history. But you'll, you may recognize this from your history books, that during the late 1800s, early 1900s, we went through the Industrial Revolution, and it began to really change the family. See, prior to the Industrial Revolution, men worked at home. They had crafts, they had trades, they went out and worked in the field, and guess where their sons and their children were? They were right there beside dad, working right alongside of them. And so when the young men grew up, guess what? They left the house and they had a trade, they had a skill, they were ready to go to work, start their own families, and their children would work right alongside of them. But the Industrial Revolution comes along and these factories go up and these office buildings go up, and all of a sudden dad is gone out of the house 8 to 12 hours a day. He comes home, it's time to eat, and then it's time to get the kids in bed. And then in the 1960s, we have the feminist revolution. We have Helen Reddy saying, I am woman, hear me roar. No one can tell me that I've got to stay at home. And so the women go into the workplace. And if dad's at work and out of the home and mom's at work out of the home, then who is caring for the kids? Who is caring for the kids? Now, don't don't misunderstand me again. We're not saying that women are are slaves to the home, and we're not saying that there's not an opportunity for them to participate. Can we agree this morning that the Word of God does not contradict itself? If so, say amen. 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 So here's what I want us to do. Jump to Proverbs chapter 31, beginning in verse 10. Proverbs chapter 31, verse 10. Now in this passage, you're going to see the picture, uh, what, what, what Scripture identifies as the ideal woman. Now tell me, if in this passage, this sounds like a woman who is homebound and not participating in provision. Here's what it says. Who can find a capable wife? She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will not lack any good thing. Now, men, pay attention to that. Okay? Uh, this is something that really struck me this last week, that her, her husband trusts in her. And as we're going to see as we go through this passage, you know what I see? I see that he's trusting her with the running of the household. He's still the leader, but he says, honey, you run that. I'm not going to micromanage that. You run it. I entrust it to you. Wise, wise husbands are willing to, to delegate that leadership, uh, that portion of the household management to their wives. You run it. I'm not going to micromanage. I'm not going to make sure that you know, we have a menu and all this stuff. That's up to you. You run it the way you see fit because you're the one that's there. She rewards him with good, not evil, all the days of her life. She selects wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the merchant ships bringing food from far away. She rises while it's still early and provides food for her household and portions for her female servants. Listen to this. She evaluates a field and buys it and plants a vineyard with her earnings. Hmm. She evaluates a field and buys it and plants a vineyard with her earnings. She draws on her strength and reveals that her arms are strong. She sees that her profits are good and her lamp never goes out at night. She extends her hand to the spinning staff and her hands hold the spindle. Her hands reach out to the poor. She extends her hand to the needy. She is not afraid of for her household when it snows, for all in her household are doubly clothed. She makes her own bed covering. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the city gates where he sits among the elders of the land. Guess what? Because the husband doesn't have to worry about the home, he can be more focused on the work that God has called him to do in leading not just in his household but in his community. She's coming alongside him. She's supporting him. And we're going to see not only is her husband recognized, but she's going to be recognized in just a minute. 
She makes and sells her linen garments. She sells her linen garments. That sounds like a job. She delivers belts to the merchants. Strength and honor are her clothing. She can laugh at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and loving instruction is on her tongue. She watches over the activity of her household and is never idle. Her sons, her children rise up and call her blessed, and her husband also. Many women are capable, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive, and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord will be praised. Give her the reward of her labor and let her work praise her at all the city gates. Who else was praised in the city gates? Her husband. This was a place of honor. This was a place for men to come and be recognized. But because this woman is coming alongside, she's understanding her responsibility in this passage. I don't know about you, but here's what I see. I see a woman who understands her primary role is to care for her family and that that at different times it takes different shapes. There are times when she's out, she's working a job, she's providing financially for her family, but she never forgets that her primary role is to care for her family. And here's, here's what I think the challenge is for us today. Um, the question remains, is it wrong for a woman to work outside the home? Because a lot, of, a lot of people have taken this text in Titus and said, no, women cannot ever work outside the home. But when I look at the overall counsel and the wisdom of God, that's not what I see. That's not what I see. Um, but here's, here's the challenge. At n- no time in this section uh, on the woman in Proverbs did I see that she was out there to find herself. Did anybody see that? Was she out there to, to prove that she could do something just to do it? What I see is a woman who overwhelmingly, her desire at the end, a woman who fears the Lord, she worked out of fear and reverence for the Lord, and, and her desire to work was to participate in the provision for her family, not to just make a name for herself. And, and this is where it may be challenging for, for some here this morning. I, I'd love to challenge um, the ladies here to pray through, what is my motivation for working? Um, and first of all, let me say, uh, if you are a mom here that works outside the home, you do not need to feel guilty. Did the Proverbs 31 woman work outside the home? Say it out loud, yes or no? Yes. Uh, Was she she lifted up or condemned by Scripture? She's lifted up. She's lifted up. So moms, if you work outside the home, uh, don't feel guilty. You don't need to feel guilty. As long as your motivation is is correct and that you're honoring God and that you're seeking to, to build up your family, and not simply make a name for yourself. In the same breath, men, let me say this. As a provider for your, for your family, uh, you're not out there to make a name for yourself either. You're not out there to find yourself or define yourself by your job. Your role in working is to provide for your family. And what we know from Scripture is that we are called to whatever work we do, we do it as directly for the Lord. And if that brings success and recognition, then we give all glory and praise to God, not ourselves. And I know this is a challenging passage, but let me say this. Um, I will never apologize for for my wife being a stay-at-home mom. I I get the question a lot, what does your wife do? And I know that there's this great tension. I mean, you can go on Facebook and you can see that there's this tension between moms who work and moms who don't work, which is right, which one's honor, honors God. And, and I would say it's both. It's possible for both to honor God. So moms, if you, if you get to stay at home 
and, and that's the role that God has provided for you and your family, then praise God for that. And don't you ever dare look down at other moms and think that they love their children any less because their life situation is that they, they participate in the provision for their family. And moms who work, don't you ever look down on moms who stay home and say, wow, she must not be very smart. She can't even get a job. That, that there is room for both of these to honor God and that there is value in both of these honoring God. The question is, am I neglecting my primary responsibility to my family? That's it. That's, that's the only question we need to ask. Am I, am I still honoring God in the way that I provide as the primary caregiver for my family? Amen? Clear? All right. So now we move to the last one. Wives are to be submissive, submissive to their husbands. Again, this is one that, that, that has been, let me just say this. Men, look at me. The reason that our culture balks at this is because of us. We have been demanding, domineering, dominant, pig-headed fools when it comes to passages like this. And men long ago took the word of God and they twisted it, they misused it, and they abused it to make it say that women are inferior to men. And that is not what it says. That is not what it says. We are created equally in the image of God. We have separate but distinct roles that are of equal value to the family. And here's what I love. It says they are to be submissive to their own husbands. Not to men in general, but submissive to their own husbands. Now, what does that mean? The word hupatasso. Everybody say hupatasso. That's a fun... Now you know Greek, all right? You can be pastors now. Uh, it means to, to come under, willingly, voluntarily come under someone's leadership. Voluntarily coming under someone's leadership. And again, this is simply a recognition that God has placed structure within the home and that in order for there to be structure, that someone has to be the leader. And we saw earlier, when God deals with the family, he, he goes to the husband first. Structure, let me say this, I've said this again. We preached through 1 Peter 3 twice already this year. Go back and find those online. Um, but structure does not indicate value. We are equally value in the eyes of God. And men, let me tell you this. If you have to, to look at your wife and tell her to submit, or you treat her like your woman, you have a serious problem in your leadership. And you need to find an older man that you can see doing it right and ask him to come alongside of you and help you. Because when we go to Ephesians 5, you know what we see? We see that Paul says, husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He gave his life for her. He washes her with the word. And here's what I think that looks like. Every morning when you get out of bed, you look back at the woman lying there and you say, I'm going to make it my goal today to find every way to serve her, to love her, to sacrifice for her. And when I'm tired, I will sacrifice more, I will love her more, and I will give her more so that she would be honored and lifted up, so that God would be honored and lifted up. Now, I don't know uh, any woman in the world that, that would experience that kind of love and say, you know what, I'm not willing to follow that kind of leadership. Ladies, I, some of you may still be struggling with the idea of being submissive to your husbands. Uh, who in the world would submit like that? Who submits themselves to someone else? Let me tell you, Jesus Christ submitted himself to the Father. Remember what he prayed in the garden. He said, not my will, but your will be done. 
And out of the silence, he understood that God was calling him to do something difficult, and he obeyed. He obeyed. Um, So we have a great example of what it looks like to submit ourselves to someone else in the Father and in Jesus Christ. Uh, Guys, last last thing he says is, is, why do we do all this? Look at what he says. He says, so that the word of God, so that God's message will not be slandered. You don't do this for your own glory. You're not doing it to make your husband look good, to make your kids look good, to be that picture, um, you know, the Christmas card picture that everybody looks perfect. That's not why we do this. We do this so that, so that God's message would not be slandered. Because how, how much of a testimony do we have when we say God is a God of order, God is a God of peace, God is a God of, of love, yet our homes are not peaceful, loving, or in order? Let's move on to the men. He tells the younger men, verse, let's look at end of verse 5. Um, God's message would not be slandered. In the same way, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. There it is again. Self-controlled in everything. Make yourself. He's going he's to go on and he's going to use Titus as a young man as an example for the other young men. He says, make yourself an example of good works with integrity, dignity in your teaching. Your message is to be sound beyond reproach so that, purpose clause, the opponent will be ashamed and have nothing bad to say about us. So when it comes to the men, he gives one overarching character quality that he wants in the men. Self-controlled. Everybody say self-controlled again. Self-controlled. This is the, the fifth time we've come across this, and here's what it means. It means that, that you are so connected to the Holy Spirit that your passions, uh, your desires are reined in. Let's look at Proverbs 16, um, chapter, chapter 16, verse 12, real quick. We've got it up here. Uh, Proverbs chapter 12, verse 16. We don't have it. There it is. Patience is better than power, controlling one's temp- temper than capturing a city. Some translations say the one who controls himself is more powerful than the one that captures the city. Talk about power. You want to demonstrate the spiritual power of God in your life? And you make sure that, that you're restrained, that you're in control. Older men, do you know what younger men need? And I think this self-control is something that younger men struggle with the most. Learning how to control our passions and our desires. Here's what the younger men need. We need the older men to come alongside of us and say, Frank, um, I know you're about to do this, but you know what that is? That's stupid. Don't do that, Frank. Oh, Frank, you just did that? How do you feel? You feel stupid, don't you? Older men, we younger men need you to help us shake off the stupid. Right? Amen? Now we go on to the, the example, the convictions. He says he wants us to be an example of good works, that we're to be a model. Even as younger men, we're to be an example. First Timothy 4, verse 12, he says this, He says, no one should despise your youth. Instead, you should be an example to the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Timothy is another one of these young pastors that Paul says, you set the example as a young man. Young men, we need to be setting the example. Set the example. Our life is on display. Remember, we said back when we talked about elders, leadership is example. Example is leadership. And he goes on and he says we need to do it with integrity and with dignity in our teaching. Words matter. Motives matter. Let me give you a quick, um, quick working definition of integrity. Integrity is this. Write this down. You mean what you say and you do what you promise. Mean what you say and do what you promise. Why? Verse 8. 
he says this, so that the opponent will be ashamed and have nothing bad to say about you. How could they ever malign the gospel if we're living with integrity and dignity? If our households are structured and ordered in a way that honors God, if we're following the designer's plan. Alice, Alice Stewart found in 1953 that x-rays were actually causing childhood cancer, causing families to be torn apart, causing children to die. But what she found flew in the face of conventional wisdom, so it would be another 25 years of children dying, families being ripped apart, mothers and fathers going through heartache and pain because the conventional wisdom was that x-rays were good and in the sound data was rejected. Because of conventional wisdom, it was another 25 years before British and American doctors would finally cease performing x-rays on pregnant women. I don't know about you, but when I turn on the TV and I look at the conventional wisdom that the world is putting forward about families, I, I don't see that it's working very well. Don't you think it's time that we move past the conventional wisdom and, and we give the wisdom of the wisdom of God an opportunity and we begin to structure our families around his instructions. As we close this morning, you'll see in your bulletin there, there's a a thing called Take Two. This is an opportunity for you to write about what God is saying to you this morning. Maybe you read something in your quiet time before you got here, and, and you feel like God is speaking to you through that, or through one of the songs, or perhaps even through the message. What is God saying to you? And then just below that, there's an opportunity for you to write down, I will. At River Rock Bible Church, we're not just content for you to say, well, uh, here's what God said, this is going to be a great week. We want you to write down, what are you going to do about it? We want you to take a next step of obedience in following God and His plan. And so we want to give you just two minutes to write down, what is God saying to you, and what will you do about it? Let's take two.